Hello and welcome to episode two of Tales from Zarahemla. My guest today is uh, one of those actors that makes up the backbone of the film and television industry. When you see his face, you say to your spouse, ooh, I like that actor. What's his name? <laughs> well, his name is Michael Flynn. Uh, and uh, welcome, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Rick. Good. I've, uh, I'm one of those guys that, that knows your name, but sees, sees you and says, oh, I like that actor. Uh, <clears throat> I've, uh, I've always uh, enjoyed your work. And you've, uh, I saw that you recently did an episode of Yellowstone. Is that right? I did do an episode of Yellowstone, yeah. Did you get to work with Costner? I did. Well, good. How was that? Uh, it was fine. You know, it was, uh, like you say, I'm not a household name or anything. And sometimes as just a, a working actor, as we call ourselves, I suppose, we go in and do an episode of a TV show like Yellowstone and... It's a good paycheck, which is always nice, and nice residuals, which is always good. As far as going in and doing a scene or two, it's fine. I mean, it's always fun. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly challenging, I suppose you'd say. <laughs> I, I guess right. the most challenging part is actually getting the job. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, but it was fun, you know, and Costner's a nice guy. I didn't really interact all, all that much with him. We just had one scene together. So, right. um, but it was fun. Well, Michael, you've been around uh, quite a while. I, I I think we first worked together on an old some television movie. I don't re even remember the name of it. Uh, yeah, I don't either. But I remember working with you. It was yeah, fun. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. And um, I think you, uh, I think you did. You know, I had Clarence Gilliard on the on the show last time, and I think you did an episode of Matlock at one point. Didn't I you? did. Yeah, a long time ago. I was working in L.A. at the time, and I did an episode of Matlock and Moonlighting and uh, oh, some other great. stuff and some films. And So you've been around and uh, I'm sure our audience, you know, if you could see Michael's face and I'll, I'll probably put a, a picture of him up on the, on the podcast image, uh, you'll, you'll know uh, that you've seen him. He's been in a lot of things. Uh, well, I, I contacted Michael a couple of weeks ago and twisted his arm uh, by saying, have you listened to my new podcast yet? And uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Rick. <laughs> I said, listen, and if you like it, I want you to be a guest. And uh, obviously he either liked it or I gave him a really sore arm from all that twisting. But um, I'm so glad you're, you're here and uh, anxious to, uh, to get your input on, uh, on what I'm trying to create. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I thought interesting concept and like the story. I like your, your take. I like your writing. I like your narration. So it's cool. Well, great. Well, um, maybe we should just jump right into story two and then okay. we'll, uh, we'll talk about it after. Great. Sound good. All right. So here we go. And now the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. Rosara Little was feeling content, but lonely. Her financial situation was better. The pantry was full. Yolinda was doing well in her third grade classes. Her baby, Sophia, was in preschool. 
And while on the first day Sophia cried when Rosa dropped her off, Sophia now seemed eager to get out of the car in the mornings and barely remembered to kiss her mama goodbye. Rosa regretted having to use childcare for the girls after school. She would much rather be at home with them, but someone had to bring home the tamales, as it were. Yolinda didn't like bacon. Mrs. Anderton was such a good babysitter, though. The girls loved her and learned so much from her. Even their manners at the dinner table had improved since going to Mrs. Anderton. Rosa had recently been promoted to shift manager. She didn't really understand what that meant. There were never more than four waitresses working at any one time. They all got along beautifully, working in tandem, covering for each other when need be. Since becoming the manager, nothing had really changed. They still relied on each other, covered for each other. Happily, the girls didn't seem to have changed their attitude toward her, even though she made more than they did now. But Rosa was glad for the increase in pay. It meant that she could send the girls to school with new clothes. It meant that she could take the girls to a movie or for ice cream once a week. It meant that much of the day-to-day -day worry about how they were going to make it was gone. It also meant that Rosa had a moment, now and then, to think about herself. It had been a long time since Rosara thought of herself as attractive to men. There were, of course, truckers at the diner that would regularly hit on her, but it seemed just a part of their routine, and they fully expected her to shut them down. The men seemed to look forward to seeing how cleverly she could turn their advances. It was just part of the diner culture. She doubted that it had anything to do with her looks. They would have hit on her if she were 85 and toothless, as long as it got a laugh from the other fellas. She had, a few times thought she caught Howard, her boss, looking at her. But as soon as she looked back, he would turn away. And he never spoke to her in any but a professional manner. Oh, well, perhaps she was past her prime. Howard C. Howard was a successful businessman, single, moderately good-looking, a loving son that at 33 still lived with his mother, and an emotional wreck. Howard's parents thought it would be both clever and distinguished for him to have the same first name as last. Howard means guardian of the home, and they wanted to instill in him a strong love for home and family. Howard hated it. He would have used his middle name, but Clive seemed too strange-sounding, Besides, Clive means cliff or slope, and Howard felt as though he were sliding down a slope ever since age 15 when his father died. His mother called him Howie, but that sounded childish to him, at least the way his mother said it. So he asked people to call him Howard. Howard had a keen sense of responsibility. The sixth and youngest child in his family, he was the one that took care of things. His brother, Frank, told him that he needed to have more fun and stop worrying about everything. His sister, Melissa, said that he was too serious about life. How can you be too serious about life, was always his answer. He didn't understand how they couldn't see that things needed to be taken care of. Howard's therapist tried to tell him that sometimes love comes in the form of letting people take care of themselves even if they have some failures. 
He couldn't wrap his head around that one. He only went to a therapist because his bishop recommended it. Bishop Jenkins seemed concerned that Howard had not yet left the nest. Didn't the bishop understand that his mother needed taking care of? Personal desires came secondary to that. Six or seven times a day, Mama Howard would call Howard at work, needing him to solve a problem for her or to calm her down. How could he just abandon her needs to follow his own dreams? Well, there she was, the beautiful Rosa. Smart, funny, mysterious. She was a widow with two little girls, and no one was taking care of her. He did what he could. He didn't really need a shift manager, but Rosa was obviously in need, so why not find a way to raise her salary? Since the raise, Rosa seemed more at ease. She laughed more, smiled more. All good for business, Howard told himself. Then why did he keep worrying about her? He found himself watching her more than was necessary. And she had caught him. How embarrassing. She might get the wrong idea. The other girls might also get the wrong idea. It was inappropriate for him to be ogling one of his employees, and he might become a laughingstock. Was that what he was doing? Ogling? He had to focus on work. Rosa was doing fine. No need to keep such a close eye on her anymore. He went into his office, shut the door, closed the blinds, buried himself in the books, and could see nothing but Rosa's stunning dark eyes looking back at him. Half a grapefruit, gluten-free oatmeal with blueberries, fresh or frozen, depending on the season, one slice of special-order paleo bread, and ginger turmeric tea was Merrill Hafen's Thursday morning routine. The herbal tea was part of her ritual every morning. Most of her breakfast orders included uncommon items, which Howard so graciously ordered in. Merrill had celiac disease, and was still a little angry at God about it. She knew that all experiences were for her good and that she would learn from them, but this was so damn inconvenient. Merrill was running for mayor of Zarahemla. She had always had an ambitious personality. She and her best friend throughout grade school, middle school, and high school, Vera Rasmussen, had been big dreamers. They had envisaged being stars on Broadway, running multi-billion dollar corporations, being the first female president and vice president. They had agreed that they would switch jobs every year once they were elected, and being the first two astronauts to step foot on Mars. They never did agree on whom would get to take the first step. They had also talked of handsome husbands and beautiful children. Vera had achieved the last part. Shortly after high school, she married Tyler Staley. Yes, handsome and smart. Tyler had been a running back on the high school football team, but contrary to stereotypes, Tyler was an excellent student, served a church mission in Thailand, went on to study chemistry at SUU and UCLA, but then chose to return home and help manage the family business, the Staley Energy Corporation. The plant was actually over in Cedar City, which meant a commute, but it was worth it to live in the hometown that he loved. 
Tyler had his own lab in the basement and was working on developing his idea for a true lithium anode battery which could change the world. Tyler and Vera had two children now, both adorable, an eight-year-old boy named Max and a five-year-old girl named Marie. Each was named after famous theoretical physicists and chemists. Meryl had to admit to herself that she was jealous. She knew she shouldn't be. She had achieved so much herself, interning for a Utah senator in Washington while securing her Master of Arts in Development, Management, and Policy from Georgetown University, earning her Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Utah. So what was she doing back in Zarahemla? At 16, she had sworn to her father that she was going to get out of this hick town and never come back. But here she was. She had turned down an offer to manage a presidential campaign back in Washington. Her heart just wasn't in it. She wasn't sure where her heart was, so she came back home to look for it. Unmarried at 28 was normal in the world she had just left, but in Zarahemla she was an oddity. She didn't know how long she would be here because she didn't know what she was looking for, but she might as well put her talents to work. So she was running for mayor. She, of course, had rekindled her friendship with Vera, but you can never go back, as they say. Hanging out with Vera just wasn't the same. Vera was constantly talking about her children and how beautiful and brilliant they were. Meryl was uncertain if she would be able to have children, and the topic grated on her. Oh, she loved the kids and liked playing Aunt Meryl, but she also found them to be rather ordinary. They were cute enough in their own way, but seemed of ordinary intelligence. But Vera wouldn't let it go. Every time they spoke, whether at lunch or on the phone, Vera bragged about how smart Max was and how clever little Marie was. It drove poor Merrill to distraction. Until one day, while Merrill was babysitting, she had an epiphanous idea. She had gained an appreciation for cunning pranks while in college, not destructive or hurtful pranks, but practical jokes so clever that the victim would have to appreciate the effort. She would need little Max as a co-conspirator. Howard woke with a start. He had drifted off at his desk, and it was only nine in the morning. How embarrassing. Good thing he had closed the blinds. He had been dreaming again about his father. A memory dream of a summer trip in the family station wagon when Howie was only six years old. Dad asked Mom if she remembered whether he had left a key under the rock for their neighbor, Grace, to find so that she could feed the fish and water the plants. Mom assured him that he had, and that even if he hadn't, Grace knew how to lift the sliding glass door in the back so that it would unlatch. Dad whistled for a while, then suddenly asked Mom if he had put the rototiller in the garage. A lot of rain would be hard on the engine. She calmed him down and told him that even if he forgot, she was sure it would be all right, no need to panic and ruin the trip over it. Then, under her breath, she added that it only started half the time anyway, and it was about time we got a new one. 
Another 20 miles went by, and Dad blurted out that he had forgotten to change the timer on the sprinkler system. Wyatt Harper, the mailman, had asked if there was any way Dad could change the setting to a little earlier or a little later in the morning, because it seemed that nine times out of ten, the sprinklers caught him as he was bringing their mail up the walk. Mom said that Wyatt would understand. Besides, he knew we would be gone for the week. He's probably holding the mail for us anyway. Dad seemed content. And then, two hours later, Mom suddenly cried out in distress. She had left the iron plugged in. She was sure of it. They would have to turn around. Dad said that they were almost to Moab and they could call Grace to have her check. But Mom went to the next level of panic when she remembered that Grace was going with her oldest daughter to the movies over in Cedar City. Dad said that he could call one of his home teachers and have them check. Mom's anxiety rose again as she announced that tonight was the elders' quorum party, and so the home teachers probably wouldn't be home either. We have to go back now. It might already be too late. The house could be on fire, and my grandmother's hutch can never be replaced. Dad tried to reason with her, telling her that Moab was only 20 minutes away and going back would take at least three hours. He was sure that everything would be okay. Mom began hyperventilating a little and then told Dad that a vacation isn't more important than a house and their precious things. Why does he never listen to her? Aren't her feelings important? Why won't he turn around now? Abruptly and quite sternly, Dad told Mom to shut up. Never had words from an adult come with more power to the heart of a child than those words did to little Howie at that moment. He had been taught over and over again in primary and Sunday school and at the dinner table to always speak respectfully to women, and especially to his mother. His dad had just yelled at his mother and told her to shut up. His little heart and mind were devastated and confused, and he vowed right then and there that he would never speak that way to a woman. In following years, he heard his father repeat this transgression whenever his mother started panicking about something. Each time, Howie became even more determined to keep his vow. Then, when Dad died, Howard knew that he would now have to be his mother's protector and make sure she was never again mistreated. Vera Staley had never had any serious regrets about staying in Zarahemla. She had been happy here growing up, and she hoped her kids would be too. Oh, there were times, as a teenager, when she had sworn off small towns and dreamed of fame and glory, but that was mostly Merrill's influence. It was so nice to see Merrill again, but it was also a bit awkward. Merrill seemed to be a little lost. Vera wanted to help her, but she didn't know how. She invited her over as often as she thought wouldn't irritate Tyler. Vera felt especially indebted to Merrill for helping her little Max discover his great, untapped potential. Last month, Merrill had been babysitting and had encouraged Max to turn off the video games and spend time learning about his namesake, Max Planck. That night, 
little Max had actually blurted out at the dinner table a quote from Planck. The quantum hypothesis will eventually find its exact expression in certain equations which will be a more exact formulation of the law of causality. Not only did Max quote it clearly and correctly, but also seemed to know what he was saying and to be interested in it. Vera and Tyler were silent for a long moment, looking at each other. Once over their shock, they tried to engage Max in more discussion about what he had said. But Max only wanted to talk about Spider-Man and how could shooting webs from your wrists really work. No matter. They both knew what they had heard. Beyond doubt, their son was a genius. It was all they could talk about that night, and of course all Vera could talk about to Merrill the next day. A timid knocking on his office door brought Howard back to the moment. It was Rosa, asking, since the morning rush was over, if he would like her to batch out Register 2 before she went to Yolinda's play at school. Mrs. Marchant was putting on a melodrama during their school day and had invited parents to come watch. Yolinda was playing the assistant villain, whatever that meant. Howard had been kind enough to give Rosa an hour off to attend. Rosa had watched Howard do the batch out many times and thought she could handle it, but only if it would be helpful to him. Howard hesitated, thinking what a perfect opportunity this might be to spend a few minutes with her as he helped her make sure she understood the process. But then he found himself telling her that it was okay. He would take care of it. She should go so that she wouldn't miss any of the play. He would see her when she got back. She smiled at him and left. When the door shut, he banged his head on his desk three times in penance for his stupidity. Merrill still sat at the corner table, sipping her second cup of tea. She was nervous about how to explain to Vera and Tyler that she hadn't meant any harm. The two of them had taken her to dinner last night, and just as they were dropping her at her apartment, had sprung the news on her that they had set up a special interview and testing session for Max at the Stanford Education Program for Gifted Youth. Tyler had arranged for a week off work so they could all fly to San Jose. They were so excited about what changes this might bring to their lives and the difference that Max might make in the world. They hugged her and thanked her for whatever part she might have played in encouraging him. Then they jumped in the car and hurried to her mom's house to pick up the kids. Merrill never meant for this to go so far. She had worked with Max all day that day to help him memorize the quote from Max Planck. She had done a little acting in school and knew how to help him with the right word stresses and inflections. She kept telling him that this was a funny game for his mom and dad, so he worked at it with gusto. During the following couple of weeks, she helped him to write out notes on his sketch pad that included parts of some of the thought experiments argued over by Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. She helped him to search websites about quantum mechanics so that if his parents checked his search history, which they did regularly, it would appear that he was reading voraciously about the subatomic world. 
She told Max that if his parents asked him why he was going to all of these sites and writing down these notes, he was only to tell them that he found it interesting and then to go back to whatever else he was doing. But somehow, it had all gotten out of hand. This morning, Merrill had called the Staleys and begged them to meet her at the diner. She had something important to share with them. Howard had just finished batching out the register and was heading back to his desk to bang his head some more when his office phone rang. It was Mom. She was in a panic. She had been trying all morning to fix the remote. They had just bought this TV last month and nothing was working. The British Baking Show had new episodes and she didn't want to fall behind because her Relief Society friends were all watching it together and trying out different recipes each week. Why was she so stupid when it came to technology? Why do things have to have so many buttons these days? Why don't they put any controls right on the TV anymore? She had pressed every button on the darn remote at least a dozen times and nothing happened. Please come help! Howard resigned himself to martyrdom, grabbed his windbreaker, told the girls that he had to run home to get his mobile phone that he had left on the counter this morning and to hold down the fort. They all smiled knowingly. Howard hardly ever used his cell phone, so it was unlikely that he really needed to run home to get it. It was his mother again, panicking about something. As Howard ran out the door, the Staleys were coming in. Merrill put on her best politician's smile and waved them over to her booth. Unexpectedly, Max was with them. Vera explained that they had decided to take Max out of school for a few days so that they could do their own testing and help prepare him for his trip to Stanford. Despite her sophisticated style and experience, Merrill started to tear up before she had even begun. She began to pour it all out. How she thought it would be fun to pull a harmless prank, but that now she realized it was just stupid jealousy. How she had never meant to lead them on for so long. How she thought they would see through it right away and get a big laugh out of it. How she was sure that their friendship must now be over and that she would miss spending time with them and the kids. She risked a look at them. And although their faces seemed stern, there was also a glimmer in Vera's eyes as she nodded some signal to Max. Max then burst out with a grin and the revelation that he had been found out. He had accidentally said something to Dad about how Aunt Merrill had showed him how to write that symbol on his sketch pad. Vera and Tyler then burst into triumphant giggles. They had turned it around on her. Merrill laughed too, with utter relief. Walking in the door... Howard found his mother still agitated and furiously pressing buttons on Howard's cell phone while pointing it at the television. Howard pointed out her mistake and found the remote stuck down inside the arm of her chair. He thought that getting the television turned on for her would calm her, but she had passed the point of no return. She began to hyperventilate as she shouted at him about how technology was more than she could handle. She might as well not go on living since she was so useless to everyone. She probably wouldn't be able to figure out the recipes on the show anyway since they used metric measurements and she was obviously too stupid to turn on a TV. 
And when he tried to tell her that everything was all right now, she accused him of being just like his father, never taking her feelings seriously, thinking they didn't matter. Why does he act like her feelings don't matter just because he got the damn TV on? In that moment, something cracked in Howard. But it was a good crack. At least it felt good, not ominous. After the crack, he thought he felt his father standing behind him, lifting great weights off his shoulders. He then heard himself sternly shouting at his mother to shut up. Mama Howard did shut up. She looked at her son in mild surprise, then smiled with a tear running down her face and thanked her son. She then tranquilly sat in her chair and changed the channel to her baking show. It would take Howard some time to process his experience and decide what it all meant, but he knew something had changed, and he felt sure somehow that he would have the courage to talk to Rosa when he got back to work. More than that, he felt sure that he would find the courage to ask her to the county fair dance next week. If she expressed any concern about an employer-employee relationship, he would fire her for the night and hire her back the next morning. But he wasn't going to take no for an answer. He told his mom that he loved her, kissed her on the cheek, and headed back to work. As he was closing the front door, he heard his mother say that it was about time he wasn't sure if she was referring to the cooking show or to him. Back at the diner, Merrill and Vera were laughing together about all that had happened, while Tyler and Max were in the bathroom washing Max's hands. Max had found a wad of gum under the table and had broken it into little balls and was laying them out in some kind of circular display on the table before any of the adults noticed how disgusting his choice of material was. Max came running back to the table, sad to find his gum model gone, but excited to share his idea with Aunt Merrill. He told her that he had been thinking about it a lot, and that while most mathematical models and experiments supported Niels Bohr's postulation that subatomic particles don't exist until they are observed, it seems that Einstein's search for proof of causality only eluded him because we are limited in our observations to our own timeline. We can't even think outside our own timeline. But what if subatomic particles always exist? but exist outside of our timeline. They then become part of our timeline only when we work to observe them. He smiled up at her and asked her what she thought of his idea. Merrill looked at Tyler suspiciously, but he just shrugged his shoulders with an awestruck look on his face. Vera's face appeared very much the same. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend.
Well, Michael, uh, what did you think? Was that a letdown from story one? No, not at all. I thought it was, I, I liked it better than story one myself. Oh, good. Uh, I, Zarahemla part one kind of got me warmed up and I was interested to see where it would go from there. And I, I really liked the, the way you, you know, progress the story. I like the music that you put in. I like the characters of Rosa and Howard and uh, Tyler and Vera and the, all this kind of stuff, Meryl and whatnot. And, yeah. And uh, I thought I thought it was great. I'm I'm anxious to see where it goes. And I'd be I'd be interested, Rick, in where you want to take this. I, what what is your platform right now as far as getting it out to the public? Well, I just put it on all the podcast services that I, I can. And, uh, you know, I reach out to uh, to friends as well and family and have, I try to get them to spread the word. I, I hope it just uh, starts to pick up. I, I've had about, oh, I think about 70 people downloaded the first one, you know, so it's a small beginning, but uh, hopefully yeah. it'll grow from there. Um, I, I really, I think my impetus for doing this is I, I just believe in the uh, importance and need of honest storytelling and uh, there's no political agenda here it's just learning Thank about heaven. people and their uh, their trials and joys in life and uh, so that's that's what i'm going for well it's nice i think in this day and age when as you said a moment ago there's no political agenda that we can actually have something to listen to that is just like you say storytelling which which you know in effect in, in essence that's what actors are we are storytellers i mean the writers are actually the storytellers and i've gotten into writing in my career and i really enjoy that aspect of it mm -hmm. and and then as actors we are charged with the the sometimes challenging aspect of bringing you know the story to life to taking the written word and we become storytellers. And I think you've done a really good job with Zarahemla on that. It's, it's fun to have something that, at least for me as an, as an adult, it appeals to me, the storyline appeals to me. And certainly if my kids and grandkids wanted to tune in, I'd be totally fine with that. And I, and I like the fact that it's apolitical, as you say, especially in this day and age. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, I, I get a little frustrated with uh, with some of my colleagues in, in uh, higher education and theater that uh, that seem to think that everything has to be politicized now, and I, I think that's a, a mistake. Um, we we need to tell honest stories, and if if you have a political message, fine, but don't uh, don't use it as a big stick to try to rabble rouse. You know, just to just tell the story and let us go on the journey with you. Yes, especially, you know, as you mentioned in the in the world of academia, I get a little bit frustrated that as you say, sometimes the teachers, professors, whatever, tend to advance their own personal agendas in what I consider to be in, uh, in an inappropriate way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could I could go on all day about the, <laughs> that topic because uh, <clears throat> it, it has, is frustrating uh, working in that world and uh, and seeing how it's changed over the last few decades. And yeah. We used to be, uh, especially on the theater side of things, it, it, at least at 
I thought people were very um, open-minded and accepting of, of all philosophies, and then suddenly it's becoming a very narrow window of, uh, of what kind of thoughts are acceptable and types yeah. of expressions are acceptable. And, and people, actors, writers, directors, musicians, whatever, being sidelined because of their polit political or religious or whatever beliefs. Mm -hmm. And that's really unfortunate in a, in a country like ours, which, as you said, it's traditionally founded on free speech. I mean, free speech is, is you know, paramount in this country, and yet right. it seems to be marginalized quite a bit these days. Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, I know COVID has slowed a lot of things down, but uh, have you got any, uh, any projects in the work right now? Alan? Yeah, I directed... I uh, wrote and directed and produced a film. Actually, it, it, I started working on on the writing of it, the script, probably about five or six years ago. And then in January of last year, so 2019, we shot the film mm -hmm. and we've been in post-production. COVID really threw us a curveball. We would have been in theaters this summer, right? but we decided not to do that. We probably won't be in theaters till next spring. Yeah, so, when, when people are used to going back to the theater. I know yeah. some of them have opened now, but I don't think too many people are going yet. So. Yeah, I went to the movies last night, and I think there were six of us in the theater. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell us the name of it. What, what should we look forward to? It's a different kind of film. It's called Who We Are. It tells the story of six millennials who spend a weekend together, strangers, they spend a weekend together at a cabin near Sundance, Utah. They just kind of let it all hang out. It's sort of, I, I guess you could say it's Mormon-centric in a way, LDS-centric, mm -hmm. in that the six characters happen to be members of the LDS church, okay. as am I. Right. But the issues that they bring up, well, let's put it this way, the, the thrust of the film is, is not about their religion. The thrust of the film is some of the issues that they're dealing with. And as an actor, you know, 98% of my work is just, you know, film, television, stuff like that, some theater thrown in. Mm -hmm. But as a writer, producer, kind of a guy, I tend to focus on faith-based kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my core, you know, just as a human being, my religion is my core. Sure. And, and so as a writer, director, kind of a guy, I, I like to focus on that. So these six kids are all LDS, but they've had some issues that they've, that they've dealt with in their lives, such as um, drug addiction, same-sex attraction, teenage pregnancy, pornography, and I, I've, I've, for a long time, I've wanted to do a film, Rick, for the LDS clientele that is not so sugar-coated, is not so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Um, you know, not so predictable, I suppose you could say. Right. And so, anyway, yeah. So I wrote this film over a period of time, and, and it's a very low-budget independent film. We shot the whole thing in 11 days a full-length feature. Toward the end of our shoot, we were doing, you know, sometimes 12, 13 pages a day, which 
for someone who's familiar with film, that that's, <laughs> that's a, a lot. ton. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, We're moving fast. On some films I've been on, we do three or four pages a day. So, right. well, and uh, you know, I I also am uh, MLDS. If uh, if my audience hadn't figured that out yet, but I I'm hoping I've created stories that are universal. I know it's in a, a small town in a Mormon community, uh, but and there are aspects of the culture that people outside the culture don't understand, but hopefully you find intriguing and that uh, you see the universality and the humanity in, in this small town, just like you would in, in any other. And that there's so much that we share. Uh, we don't have to be of the same religion or philosophy. We can, there are things about our human experience that, uh, that we share and we, we learn vicariously from each other's stories. Yeah. I got that when listening to uh, the first episode and second episode, I thought, this is great. This is a story about, you know, a small Utah town that really, it's about a small Utah town. And and I think I think most people realize a small Utah town, there are going to be a lot of Mormons in it. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's kind of a universal yeah. understanding. Mm -hmm. And yet that's not the theme, at least I didn't think was the theme of the story. Right. And so I really, I really enjoyed that. I'm, I'm interested to see, I'm interested to see what kind of conflicts you know, you're going to bring up you know you've got um you know you've got rosa who happens to be not only guess mm -hmm. and uh i'm interested to see where the relationship with howard goes and and uh and the other characters i just, i don't know i just find them interesting and i i like since i'm lds i i sense a little bit of the lds undertones of the of the story but um they're very subtle and i think if this were a story about a small town in northern Italy where everybody was Catholic, mm -hmm. I would still, I think it would, you know, you just have to change a couple of things and it could right. totally work for that. So. Yeah. No, I, uh, I appreciate that. I, I hope that's, uh, that's how it comes off. So, well, uh, do stay tuned for, uh, all these developing, uh, personalities. I, I really have, uh, started to fall in love with all these people who live in yeah. Zarahemla. <laughs> so, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to put out about one a month uh, because with all my other uh, activities, uh, uh, to start writing uh, a story like that more than once a month is, is going to be tough. So Yeah, um, for sure. But, uh, but I'll, keep, I'll keep moving forward. Yeah, and I thought the production value you had was very good. You know, it wasn't overblown, but there was some nice music in it, oh, uh, some sound effects, stuff like that, and made it very easy to listen to. Good. Good to hear. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, sure. I really do appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. I appreciate your friendship, and uh, I'll look for your movies and look for your face on that, on that screen some more. Okay. All right. Take care. Thanks, Thanks so much. Rick. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to having you back for episode three. <laughs>